changing your life one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark. It's Friend Friday, and today I want to introduce you to Wendy Walker, who has co-authored several Chicken Soup for the Soul books and is a best-selling novelist, but she's also a family law attorney in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and she began writing while she was at home raising her three sons. She published several novels with St. Martin's Press, and she's done books with us, and her latest thriller, which came out in summer 2016, is called All Is Not Forgotten, but besides being a great writer, she's also um, a wonderful lawyer who graduated magna cum laude from Georgetown Law School, and she undergrad went to Brown University. This is one smart person. And then here's something really cool about her. When she was a teenager, she was such a good figure skater that she went out to Colorado to train to be on the Olympic team. But I think you had a knee injury, right, Wendy? Yes, it was actually my ankle. And um, it was just at that crucial moment when I needed to be stepping it up. And I ended up you know, falling behind. And it was such a changing time for figure skating. Um, Elaine Zayek was doing all these triple jumps. It was becoming a very physical sport right at the time when uh, I was not able to be as physical. Uh, it was one of those things. And you move on. Yeah. And I know you're still very involved with figure skating, though. And I know that you work with figure skating in Harlem. You're on the board of directors there. And we published yes, some of those w- girls. We published them in, in one of our books, those girls who yes. figure skate in They're Harlem. Wonderful. Yeah, I actually have I've been off the board for a couple of years, but I was the founding chairwoman, and I was on the board for many years. I'm still um, uh, involved and go to the events. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful organization, and it's a great way to still be involved in figure skating. So I want to talk about your book, All Is Not Forgotten. You know, I bought it the day it came out last summer. I bought it from the Apple store. I bought the ebook. And I have two logins on my phone. I bought it with the other login and then Apple wouldn't let me read it. So I bought oh, no. I bought it and then they said, "No, you can't read it for 90 days because you've logged in with your other Apple login." So I ended up listening to the audiobook instead and narrated by Dylan Baker. Oh my yes. goodness. He is he's kind of creepy. He he was like he was a great narrator for your book cuz it had a lot of creepy aspects yes. to it. And he's that guy who's on the Americans and he always plays a creepy character. But what he a, does. He, what yeah. a great narrator for you to get. He's such a big actor. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah, he was. So so this book I know it's in this new category called grip lit, which is like this new category for psychological thrillers. And what caused you to switch to this genre, whereas your first books were more in the chick lit area? Yeah, so I had been writing for many years, and I initially got published in this sort of women's fiction chiclet space, not quite as funny as chiclet, but not quite as literary as, you know, as literary fiction. And it was a space that they call women's fiction. And, um, and I, and those books didn't really 
break through. So I was not, um, you know, I wasn't making a living as a writer. And I went back to practicing law and working and doing the, the chicken soup for the soul books, which was such a great opportunity. Um, but I went back to practicing law and then, uh, but I just had this feeling that I wasn't quite done um, trying to uh, make, a, you know, a career as a writer. And so a couple of years after I, I had given up, I found a new agent. I actually wrote a whole other novel in women's fiction um, and edited it with her for, you know, a whole year. And she then said to me, look, this, the space just is, is not profitable right now unless you already really have a foothold there. And so I said, well, I, I have a lot of different stories and there are many ways to tell stories. So what, what is the, the, the genre and the format that readers are really enjoying? And she said, well, everyone is loving psychological thrillers right now. Um, Gone Girl, Girl on a Train, all of those had broken through. And people were just loving this new way of telling stories, which is with a, a, an unreliable narrator who's um, uh, you know, written in the first person. And it just adds a level of suspense where you have to figure out if your narrator is telling you the truth or not, and you have to try to dissect the psychology of your narrator. And that adds a whole other di uh, dimension um, to, um, you know, stories involving crime and suspense and mystery. So I had this great idea from 2010 um, when I'd read an article about memory science, and I just never knew how to use it in women's fiction. So I hadn't done anything with it. So she gave me this sort of free ticket to switch genres, write about crime, write in this amazing new voice. And I took that idea and combined it with that genre. And just, it was just like the perfect coming together of, of a genre and a, and a plot idea. Uh, so I feel really fortunate um, about the timing and how everything came together. Yeah. So this book was so fascinating to me because I love science and basically you have a uh a girl who is raped and then she's given medicine that makes her lose her memory of what happened to her. And then right. we go through all the implications of the fact that now she doesn't have that memory, but she still ends up feeling the trauma of it, but without having the memory of it, which may be worse. And it, it was such an interesting yes. premise. And it made me think if that kind of medicine were ever really available would I want to be given that medicine or would it have unintended consequences? And then if this kind of yes. medicine ever existed, would we like fill out a form like people fill out DNRs now, you know, what do they want? Yes. Right. Would you, would you also have a form that you would fill out in terms of healthcare? Like I do or do not want to be given a memory loss drug if something bad happens to me. It, it's a yes. really interesting area. So I know you told me that this medicine doesn't actually exist yet, but we're almost there, right? Yeah, so, so what we can do now, well, there's a few components to it. We do know that within a short period of time after a trauma, that if, if the memory hasn't gone into sort of long-term memory, um, which is called consolidation, if that hasn't happened, you can interrupt that, that process um, with drugs that basically impair um, the, the brain from, from storing memory. And that's why, you know, if someone is given a, a roofie, which we all sort of know that, that, um, that term, or if someone is extremely intoxicated, they can wake up the next day without a memory. You know, there's 
blackout drunk is an expression we hear. And, and that's because the brain is not able to do the functions that are necessary. So there's that window that exists right now um, that could be targeted. And then what they're also doing, and this is, I think, really fascinating, is that every time we recall a memory that's in our long-term memory storage, um, every time we recall it, it becomes vulnerable to being altered. And in fact, it is actually altered every single time. They call that reconsolidation. And the reason for that is that the brain is trying to update that memory to make it useful for us today. And it's sort of a, a, it's a survival mechanism for us um, to try to make the memories um, useful and current uh, and not just sort of taking up space in our brain. And when they realize that, um, they now can treat trauma patients by altering the emotional piece of that memory. So they will have a trauma patient recall a memory in great detail while they're under the influence of a sedative. And they do this over a series of, of um, treatments, and there's been great success in lowering PTSD. So that doesn't get to the factual component of the memory, but it is altering the emotional component. And that's like amazing, you know, to be able to, to uh, get rid of the anxiety and, and, the, and the PTSD symptoms that come from a trauma. But they also now are working to erase the factual components so that when you recall a memory, they could theoretically give you a drug that impairs the brain's ability to put the memory back in storage. So it's like pulling out that computer file on your, you know, a Word document up on your screen and then making changes to it and then you know, something happens and it's, and it's gone. It just gets erased before you can put it back on your hard drive. And so they are working um, towards that. And that's where I thought this was really interesting in the context of crime in particular. Yeah. And the parents had to decide, give the drug yes. to their daughter and impair her ability to bring the rapist to justice or give her the drug. And they thought that they were going to be eliminating the emotional harm to her. But in fact, she kept the emotional harm, but didn't have the memory anymore. And this goes to what does it mean to be a survivor of a crime, especially a crime like rape? And, and I thought it was so fascinating that it, it goes to the fact that as human beings, we're not just the sum of our factual memories. We have this sense of bodily integrity, of trust, of um, fairness of of feeling empowered and being heard and having our will listened to and respected, and so we find that even um, survivors of rape who don't remember what happened to them because they were roofied or they were intoxicated, they still suffer emotional trauma just from knowing that they were raped. And so it goes to our very humanity, I think, um, as well as the the fact that the, the trauma can still live within us in a sort of visceral, physical way uh, that when the facts are gone can become very um, debilitating. So those two components, I thought, together um, really would make a great novel. And that's, that's, uh, that, that was my launching point for the book. Well, it reminded me of what Michael Crichton used to do, because he would write a novel about, you know, there was always a great plot, but there was also an issue and I, I yes. went and saw him speak at, I think, the New Canaan Library in Connecticut one time. And he said that he would come up with an idea. And then by the time the novel was published, 
that idea would actually be something that was in the current conversation in society, but he didn't know that when he conceived of it originally. At the time, right. And I think that what you did in, in this book, All Is Not Forgotten, I think you have exposed us to something which is going to become part of the conversation pretty soon. I think it is. Absolutely. I mean, they can already target and erase factual memories in, in rodents um, and using chemicals that, that block um, the brain's ability to, uh, to refile memory. And it's, uh, you know, they are, they are working on it. It is, it is, uh, it's going to be uh, in, I would say in the next 10 years, we are going to be um, faced with, with these types of decisions. And of course, as you said, having to make a decision for yourself is one thing. But having to make a decision like that for your child um, adds a whole other dimension because, you know, if we make a mistake in a decision and we live with it, then we live with it. But if we make our child live with the consequences of a decision we've made, um, that is even more, I think, you know, sort of uh, terrifying (laughs) for parents. It's going to so be I great. To add that component to it as well. It's going to be great when the movie comes out. I was so impressed to read that you sold the movie rights to Reese Witherspoon, and I, I guess there's it's going to be a movie through Warner Brothers, right? Yes. Yeah, so Warner Brothers actually owns the option for the film, and Reese Witherspoon and her partner um, are attached as producers, and um, and she has the option to uh, play the mother, Charlotte. So, um, you know, all of these things have to, I, I, they've written the script. So now we're just, you know, they, they've gone out to directors and, um, and it's all just a piecing together directors and then the rest of the cast and then Reese's schedule and all of those things. So, um, you know, I'm hopefully all of those, the stars will be aligned and all of those things will, um, will come together because I think she would really be wonderful playing, um, the, the mother of the, of the girl in this book. Um, and she, uh, you know, it was just out in, in Big Little Lies. I thought she was amazing in that. And her ability to play these sort of complex female characters, um, I think, has added a whole other dimension to her um, to her acting. And uh, and I'm, I'm just incredibly excited. I could not be more pleased. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks, everyone, for listening to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Come back Monday. We're going to talk about moms and the sacrifices they make for their kids without their kids even knowing it. If you want to learn more about Wendy Walker, visit her website, wendywalkerbooks.com. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. 